Good evening to all our viewers who are joining us tonight for another Bible study uh, in our quarantine. We miss you dearly. We've been praying for you. We trust that you're doing well in Jesus' name. And if you were with us last week, you know that we uh, have stumbled upon a topic that is rare to hear these days, but is absolutely necessary in terms of our hope. And it's the subject of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the physical manifestation of his kingdom and his earthly rule that will come at the end of the age. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was so blessed to see just the, the scriptures that testify of this doctrine and uh, the implications that it has for us in this world right now and how we are to view uh, all these events, what it's going to ultimately lead to. It's going to ultimately lead to Jesus Christ claiming all things for himself, and we will be a part of that kingdom reigning with him. And it seems like we're just naturally in this subject. And um, it seems like this week there's going to be a great connection because, as you already know, we're speaking about another event that is in line uh, with the millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ cannot be confused as something that will happen immediately, meaning it's not something that will just occur the moment that we go up with Jesus and then come back down with him uh, soon to, to see him manifest himself in the way that we've learned last week. There are so many events that are around the millennial reign of Christ, especially before its uh, manifestation and it, it being ushered into um, this world. And there are many of them, and we don't have enough time to talk about all of them, but we will spend our time talking about one, and that is the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Uh, let me put it this way, that um, after we are taken up to be with the Lord in the rapture, and before we come back down with Him when He ushers in the millennial reign, there are things happening in between. And one of the things that are happening I would argue one of the initial things that will be happening is that you and I are going to experience something known as the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a Bible study. This is not a sermon. My goal tonight is that by the Spirit, we would just see the truth of this in the Word by collecting verses and that our hearts would be burning as a result of seeing the simplicity of the texts that are given to us. And so this is going to be more of like a commentary on these specific verses, but we want to pray and ask that God would drive it into our souls because this is a forgotten doctrine in our day. I believe that this is something that is not emphasized as much as it needs to be emphasized and for many reasons. So, as you're sitting there and as you're watching, just, just stop for a moment. If you're distracted, just stop and pray with me in these next few seconds. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to really help us, lest this just become another lesson and we leave the same way that we started. Let's not have that happen. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would just bless this word, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would rest upon this word and that we would all change as a result of it. Lord, eliminate all distractions. Take our undivided attention in this time and speak to our hearts and show us where we need to change and show us where we need to be comforted for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like the millennial reign of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ um, is, is something that is sprinkled around the Bible and needs careful attention to gather together in order for us to understand the full picture. 
But there are two clear New Testament texts that tell us clearly about this judgment seat. And here's one of them. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And Paul plainly says, to Christians, by the way, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the beauty and the, f- the freedom that we receive as becoming uh, followers of Jesus Christ is this, that you and I do not inherit the wrath of God. You and I, because of our inclusion in Christ, are far removed from swift judgment. We escape His divine justice, and we are adopted into His family, promised forgiveness and promised eternal life. That is a promise that is rehearsed over and over in the New Testament. You and I never have to fear that this free gift of salvation will be taken from us by God. Or that it will be something that God changes his mind one day or the other concerning our status of forgiveness. No, we have a promise from God that we will never, ever, ever have to expect his fierce wrath to be poured out upon us. But nevertheless, as Christians, that doesn't mean that we escape God's judgment totally. What I mean by that is you and I as believers in Jesus Christ do not and have no right to dismiss the idea that we will be evaluated by God at the end of our lives. We think that because we're Christians, we're going to be raptured one day or we're going to die before that. We're going to be raptured. There's going to be the resurrection and we're just going to have this huge get together and reunion with all our loved ones and we're going to celebrate Christ. And then whenever it's time, we're just going to all come back down with him like we learned last week and see him rule and reign. No. Before you and I experience those things, you and I, and I would argue one of the first things, if not the first thing we're going to experience as the global church, as we are resurrected, we're going to line up to be judged by Jesus. Paul says, for we must all appear. There's no exception. There's no escaping this. You can't have somebody do it. You can't tell the Lord, I don't know if I feel like it. Uh, You can't have a representative. Your pastor can't go before you. Your mom can't go before you. Your dad can't go before you. The Bible clearly tells us we must all appear. And so this is said, this is determined. God's not going to change his mind on it. No matter how much we feel uncomfortable with this doctrine, it's already set. You and I Each of us as believers will appear before Jesus and have a face-to-face conversation about what? Well, Paul says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this whole judgment is going to be an evaluation of your life. Now, it's important to understand that it's going to be from the moment that you became a born-again Christian to the moment that you give your final breath or are raptured by Christ. So the moment that you said yes to the Lord, to the moment where you are going to see the Lord, that span of time and everything that was done in it, whether good things or bad things, are going to come before the Lord and He's going to perfectly evaluate it, examine it, and then give the just reward for it. And so everything about the judgment seat of Christ deals with rewards. It does not determine whether you are going to be saved or not. That judgment has already been poured upon Christ. The hope that we have as believers is that what Christ did for us is so that we would not have to step before the great white throne, which is talked about in Revelation, where people will be judged 
because they're not found in the book of life and the degree of their punishment will be determined by that judgment. I want to say right off the bat, I hope that the judgment that you're going to face as you're watching this will be the judgment seat of Christ and not the great white throne judgment. Believer and non-believer alike are all headed towards a judgment, but there are two different types. And the one that we want to be at, the, the sign that we want to see when we are raptured is judgment seat of Christ. We can breathe a sigh of relief to know that the judgment of our salvation has been dealt with, but nevertheless, we have to face another evaluation that will be done by the Lord Jesus. And this is what you and I have to first face when we meet the Lord. And people ask, is it going to be public? Is it going to be private? I'll tell you this, I don't think that's going to really matter. What's going to matter most is what Jesus says. You know, we live our lives, most people, caring what people think and what others think. That's not going to matter when you're raptured. The only thing that's going to matter is those eyes of fire and the smile that will be upon his face. I can guarantee you that. Now, here's the thing. We all have read a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.10. We've seen different hints about this, but we really need clarification about what is going to happen. And we already determined and we already established that this is not dealing with your salvation. That is absolutely clear from the Bible. You are not going to meet your judge in the sense of the one who will give you the stamp of approval concerning your inheritance for eternal life. You are going to meet your Savior. You are going to meet your King. You're going to meet your Lord, your Master. And that's a comforting thing for us. And it's going to be about how you live for him. That's when people might feel uncomfortable. Because some might be objecting even now to say, what's the point of this whole reward thing? Uh, I don't understand it. I, I, I like the idea of just grace and being um, evaluated by the finished work of Jesus. And yes, we want that, especially in terms of where we're going to spend eternity. But some might say, like, do we really need rewards? What's the purpose behind it? Uh, I just want to serve Jesus Christ and spend eternity with him. Aren't we just going to be in his glory and, and bask in his presence? What's this whole thing about evaluation and gifts and acknowledgement? Now, that might be a valid argument if you believe that when we are raptured and taken up, we are going to be ushered into the eternal state. That would make sense. But you and I learned last week that before the eternal state, before Jesus makes a new heavens and a new earth, there is going to be his physical rule on the earth for 10 centuries. There is this gap of time between the eternal state and you being raptured and coming back with Christ called the millennial reign. So here's the connection between last week's Bible study and this week's, that everything pertaining to the judgment seat of Christ, specifically with Christ rewarding, acknowledging, exalting has to do with the way you and I Christian are going to experience the millennial reign. It has to do how you and I are going to live those thousand years under the government of Jesus Christ. That's what the judgment seat is all about or else it doesn't make sense. And we're going to, we're going to see that in a moment, how these two truths tie in together. I believe that when the church is going to be raptured, God is going to deal with the world in the tribulation. And one of the things that's going to be happening in heaven while God is dealing with things on the earth is that the whole church from the beginning of time to that moment is going to be judged based on their lives and how they will experience the millennial reign when Christ ushers it in and we follow him. That is crucial. Because we really need to understand and not come to this judgment seat unprepared or shocked. And I think a lot of leaders 
are going to be held accountable before the judgment seat because they refuse to teach on this doctrine. You're not doing anybody a service by not teaching on this because you don't want people to feel uncomfortable with this doctrine. And we're going to realize that it's more freeing than we think. So what's going to happen? Uh, what's the conversation going to be like? What are the rewards involved? Well, we're just going to skim the surface, just like the millennial reign. We're not going to dive too deep into this. We're just going to get a taste of it, and then hopefully you'll be encouraged to do your own study, especially during this quarantine. One thing that you and I are going to expect when we are raptured and we are taken up to be before the Lord at this judgment, there's going to be a lot of crowns, a lot of crowns. And you've probably read about these crowns in the Bible. In fact, there are five different types of crowns that we know of in the New Testament. They have different names, such as the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the list goes on. And these are the ones that we know about. And they have specific purposes in terms of rewards. So you have one that deals with martyrs. Those who are martyred, who lost their lives and gave their lives up for the testimony of Jesus, they have a crown reserved for them. Then you have those for leaders in the church, specifically elders. There's a crown reserved for them and based on their faithfulness in that position. And then obviously there's the crown for any believer and how they run their race and if they finished well. So there's a crown reserved for many things. But one thing we're going to expect is a lot of headpieces reserved. I don't know if we're going to see them immediately or not. But the Bible assures us that crowns will be offered and given on this day. I've heard some people who have uh, heard this truth and have uh, said out of, I hope, a pure conscience and a pure motive, I don't care about crowns. I'm not too interested about Jesus crowning me with anything. I just want to serve him and I'm not expecting anything from him. Now that sounds like a good thought. That sounds like a humble thought, right? Uh, I don't want that. Maybe you've thought that. I just want to serve the Lord and just bless him. He doesn't deserve to give me anything because what he did on the cross was enough. But here's the thing. Until you realize what these crowns are used for, maybe you will reconsider your position. Because when I read the book of Revelation, I see that there are crowns mentioned. I see it throughout the New Testament letters. But I see only one purpose. I've only seen one. Maybe you've seen more. But I've only seen one purpose for these crowns in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10. When it's talking about the 24 elders. The 24 elders that are around the throne of God. And then it begins to tell us that they, they break out in worship. And here's one of their expressions of adoration towards the Lord. Look what it says in Revelation 4.10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So they fall off their own thrones and they're worshiping Jesus Christ. And then look what it says. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, and then they begin to worship. You know what's happening here? Is that they have these crowns on their heads. And the only thing that you and I see in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation, to how these crowns are used, they are used to manifest and to express adoration before the Lord. Yes, you are right in saying that we are not worthy to have these glorious headpieces placed upon our heads to wear around in the millennial reign. We, we are not worthy. There's only one who is worthy to, to have not just one crown, but crown him with many crowns. But 
if the purpose of these crowns is so that we can take them off our heads and place them at the feet of Jesus, then I don't know about you, but I say, give me as many crowns as I can get. Because if that means these crowns on my head will ultimately go back to his feet to tell him how worthy and how glorious and how majestic he is, then I don't want to be before Jesus Christ empty-headed. I don't want to have nothing to give the Lord. I don't want my, my head to have nothing of value to place at his feet when I bow before him. And so if the crown means I can worship him more emphatically and more beautifully, then I will join the 24 elders and place that crown where it belongs and that is his feet. And so do not push back on this especially if you care about worshiping and glorifying Jesus. It's not that uh, those who have crowns are showing more worship, but it's our way of being able to express to the King of Kings that He is worthy. He is worthy of every crown. In fact, there are some who don't care about this concept of reward. And that's why Jesus brought a warning to one of the churches. It's in the chapter before Revelation 3. And look what He says to this church at the end of his instruction. He says here in verse 11 of Revelation 3, I am coming soon. Now, if he said that then, what do you think he's saying now? If if back in John's day when he wrote Revelation, he said, I am coming soon. Don't you think that his hand is on the doorknob now? I am coming soon. And then what does he say? Hold fast what you have. He's talking to Christians so that no one may seize your crown. Hold on for a second. I'm called to hold on to what I have, specifically in my life till the end, lest I forfeit my crown. Yes, it is possible for you and I as Christians to have our crowns forfeited. Now, what he's not saying is that somebody is able to steal your crown. Nor is he saying that there is only a limited amount of crowns and the way you live and the way other Christians live will be evaluated like a race. And if you were better at prayer and evangelism and if you did more, that means you get the crown when he looks at all the, the people in his roster. No. The Bible tells us clearly in 2 Timothy 4.8 that there is a crown reserved for everyone who loves his appearing. There's a crown for you. Yes, you. Whoever you are, there's a crown with your name on it. But the issue is, is that it's possible because of our lack of faithfulness. It's possible because of the influence of the world or other nominal Christians, lukewarm Christians to influence us in such a way where we live in a lesser degree of devotion where we give up the crown. And on that day, we will suffer loss and we will see other believers who are crowned and God forbid we would be the ones who do not receive that reward. So Jesus warns one of the churches, let no man seize your crown. Is it possible to say that that crown that was supposed to be for you will be given to another because they were faithful? That could be a possibility. And so this is a very, very, very sobering thing for us. If we care about giving something to Jesus in terms of worship and devotion and fragrance of love, then you're going to take your crown seriously. You're going to take that moment seriously. You're going to take your life seriously. But the judgment seat of Christ is not limited to these physical crowns with different names for different purposes. And No, we see something else. And it's actually found in Revelation 20, where we left off as our main text last week. Look what it says in verse 4 of Revelation 20. After we are told that Satan is bound for a thousand years when Christ returns into a pit. Remember we talked about that truth 
extensively last week. Something is told to us after Satan is bound into a pit to not deceive the nations for that millennium. What does it say here in verse 4 of Revelation 20? John says, Then I saw thrones. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Hold on. Did he say, Then I saw a throne? Did he say a throne? No, he said thrones. Plural? Yes, plural. Meaning there are many thrones. And we don't know how many thrones there are, but we know the purpose of these thrones is that these thrones will be occupied by people who have been committed the authority to actually operate in judgment. Now the context is the millennial reign. We're not talking about the end of everything where God is going to judge the wicked. No, we're talking about the beginning of the millennial reign. There's going to be thrones placed and they're going to be occupied by individuals. Now, how do we make sense of this? Well, this is how we make sense of it. Remember, Jesus Christ is going to come back physically to rule and reign. And he is coming as a judge and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. But Jesus Christ is also going to share his administration. His government is not going to be solely based upon his word, though it's going to be the ultimate word. No, he's, all, he's actually going to give different responsibilities and give different leadership roles to who? To the church. The church. And that's going to be determined in the judgment seat of Christ. And those positions are going to be assigned. So people are not just going to get some crowns. Some people are going to get some roles. So that when we come back with Jesus, there's going to be a th- not just crowns, but th- thrones with people's names on them. This is probably mind-shattering to our understanding of how this is working. We thought we were just going to go to heaven and worship 24-7. We're going to come back to the new heaven and new earth and worship 24-7. No, there's going to be some stuff that we have to do. And some people will be granted the re- responsibility to do it. And so Jesus Christ is going to share his government with the redeemed. Here's proof of that. Now we need proof, right? Well, go to Matthew 19, 28. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry with his group of disciples, and after he dealt with the rich young ruler, you're familiar with the story, Jesus talked about how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Peter peeps up and he goes, Hey, Jesus, you know we gave everything to follow you, right? Uh, What will be given to us? He asked that. He says, what's going to happen to us? We sacrificed everything. Look, we left our businesses, our families, our homes, and we've been following you for this long. Is there anything in it for us? And look what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28. Now pay attention. This is in the ESV. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, meaning I really mean what I'm saying, and please pay attention. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, I like how the ESV puts it. In other translations, it says, in the regeneration. But in the new world, it's the same idea. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus promised his disciples, because you gave up everything, especially by trusting in me in the beginning stages of my unveiling and establishment of the new covenant, because you have made this sacrifice in this life, there's a reward for you in the next world. What world? Well, the the world that he is going to establish when he comes. 
And he told them, there are 12 seats for you reserved so that you can judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So that tells you one thing. No Christian is going to be able to claim judgment or authority over Israel. That's reserved for the disciples. And so one might make the argument and say, okay, so those thrones that we read of in Revelation 20, that's the thrones of the disciples that Jesus talks about here. No, it's not limited to that. It includes that, but this concept and this application is actually broadened even wider towards the church age at large. So you're familiar with this text, I'm sure, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Paul's speaking to the believers and he's criticizing them. Why is he criticizing the believers at that point? Because he learned that there are Christians who are suing other Christians. There are believers taking other believers to court. And Paul's making an argument. He's saying, you guys are making an embarrassment to the name of Christ. You as believers, as the redeemed, as followers of Jesus Christ, you're taking your issues and you're bringing them before the unbelieving. So now the world is going to see that we can't solve our problems. And so look what he says specifically in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Well, he's saying to the saints, to the Corinthians, do you realize that Christians are going to judge which world? This world? I don't think so. No, the world that we studied about last week. And he's using an argument. He's trying to help them understand their destiny and their position in Christ. He's trying to help them understand what is to come and how it should affect them in this life. And he's trying to make this case. If you have been granted the awesome privilege of judging nations, and then he goes on to say afterwards, judging over angels, who are you to go to the world and seek insight and resolve for your issues? He's almost elevating them so that they would not lower themselves concerning who they are in Christ and what is to come by going down this route. He's saying, you are judges. You're going to be given rule and authority and and these wonderful positions. And you are relying upon the unsaved to give you clarification, to give you resolve. Come on, don't you understand who you are? And another way of looking at it is this. If you can't solve your issues in this life, how are you going to be given the responsibility to deal with nations and cities and all these things that are going to happen in the next life? You know, I read that and I thought to myself, I wonder if those who continually cause problems in the church will lose their opportunity to be granted this privilege of ruling in the millennial reign. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for a continual gossiper, a troublemaker, one who rebels against authority, to be given a position to rule on a throne in the next life. It just doesn't make sense. But those who are the peacemakers, and those who stand for righteousness and don't take a a bribe and are not ones to make decisions based on favoritism, oh, I'm sure that Jesus will take that into consideration at the judgment seat of Christ. And so you see here that Paul is using a future truth for a present application. And it's a sobering, weighty thought to think, is it not? That that is where the church is headed. 
And Christ is going to trust the church with much. But the church, the believer, needs to be faithful with the little in this life to know, even if they have the chance to be even considered for what's going to come. You know, at this point, you might be feeling squirmish because everything up to this point has been about being evaluated for what we're doing. But please be reminded that you're saved, not because of what you do or don't do. But this is Jesus Christ's kingdom. He's the king. So we need to be sobered by this. He makes the rules. See, this is offensive to us for many reasons. And here's one of the reasons. Because we live in a day in which we are praised for everything. Everybody gets a ribbon. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a medal. Whether you won or you lost. Whether you put effort or practice. It doesn't matter. Because we don't want anybody's self-esteem to be hurt or to be ruined. Listen, Jesus Christ is a serious government. And throughout his earthly ministry and even beyond, he gave us warning after warning and instruction after instruction that how we live is going to be greatly considered and how we experience the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. There's no escaping it. And so we see here that Paul makes it clear. Now, the argument can be, well, uh, I can see that that's something else. I can see that that's nothing to do with how I experienced the millennial reign. So if you and I don't take Paul's words seriously, which we should, let's go to the words of Jesus. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 2 and see how he echoes what Paul says in a very specific way. He says in Revelation 2, 26, remember those seven letters to those seven churches. And to one of them, he gives this encouragement and this promise. He says in Revelation 2, 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. Now, we're at the book of Revelation here. What is Jesus talking about? What we've been declaring over and over, his earthly reign, his messianic kingship. This is going to come. And he's saying to him who conquers, I will give personally the authority to rule over the nations. Now, look at this in verse 27. And he will rule with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Do you realize this? He's telling these Christians, if you conquer, if you overcome, and if you are faithful until the end, I'm going to give you a rod of iron. The same way I received the rod of iron from my father, I will extend a rod of iron to you and say, son, because you are faithful, you are going to rule and reign over this specific group of people. You come because you were faithful. Here's a rod of iron. You stood fast. You're going to rule and reign. That's what it's going to look like. Now he says, the one who conquers, the conquers what? There's a context there. You have to read the verses before that. And the context there is that there was a church that was teaching false doctrine. There was a woman named Jezebel in the church. She was operating in the spirit of Jezebel. And she was teaching a doctrine that says, you can be Christian and live sexually immoral. You can live in the flesh because God is merciful and gracious. And he'll forgive you for all the sins that you commit. So just do what you want because you have urges. And then God will give you grace. And so... Jesus says, if you conquer that kind of teaching, if you overcome it, if you don't bite into it, if you don't surrender to a carnal Christian life, if you don't give yourself to compromising teaching and you hold fast to the truth, even though the most of the crowd doesn't want to hold to it, if you hold to the end, if you stay strong, I will give you authority. I will give you 
a reward and I will exalt you and elevate you in the next life because you were faithful to me, even when other people in the church were not faithful to me. To one who conquers a mindset, a popular teaching in the day that does not emphasize holiness and righteousness and clean living and being separated from the world. He says, to you, I will allow you to rule and reign with me over specific nations. He doesn't just say there, look at Revelation 3. Not just Revelation 2, he says in Revelation 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, again, he's echoing the same thing. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So we might read that quickly and say, oh, Jesus is just repeating himself. No, he's not repeating himself. Do you see the difference here? In the church earlier, he says, I will give you a rod of iron and you will rule over nations. But he says this to the lukewarm church of all churches, probably the worst described and condemned church out of all the seven. He says, listen, you won't just sit on the throne. You'll sit on my throne. You'll sit with me. You will occupy it with me. I read that and I thought, Lord, you have your own throne. Surely nobody's going to share that. You know, you think about James and John who asked Jesus, his mother, they got their mother to even ask, can my sons sit to your left and to your right? And he goes, listen, this is not up to me to determine. The father will determine this. But Jesus says to the lukewarm church, not to my left or to my right, he says, you're going to sit right beside me. You're going to sit right on my throne if you conquer. Conquer what? Well, what's the church's problem? The problem of the American church, I would argue, lukewarmness. That's what they have to conquer. Half-hearted devotion, half-hearted commitment, a sense of self-reliance and satisfaction in the things apart from God. That's what they were dealing with, right? They looked around, they they looked at their prosperity, they looked at their social life, they looked at their church life, and they thought to themselves, we're in need of nothing. There is no sense of hunger. There is no sense of desire. There is no sense of pursuing the presence of God, pursuing the purposes of God. No, they just liked how things were and their joy and their happiness came from things and church was just a side thing and they were just all right with that. And Jesus said, you know, this actually makes me sick to my stomach. But if you conquer, I'll let you sit on my throne. You know what that tells me? It tells me how much overcoming lukewarmness means to Jesus. This says something about the heart of God. This says something about what He desires from us, so much so that He's willing to reward it with, I would say, one of the greatest, if not the greatest reward out of the seven churches. He's saying, listen, if you just fight it, if you overcome it whenever it visits you, if you don't stay content in your lukewarmness, because there are a lot of Christians who are lukewarm and loving it. But if you're uncomfortable with that spiritual condition, if you make moves to make sure that your heart will burn again for me, this is how much it means to Christ. You can sense his excitement and the value of a burning heart to him. He says, oh, you'll sit with me, with me, not on a separate throne, but on my throne. That's how much burning for Jesus means to him. You see the value of the reward and how it equates to the value of a love for Christ. And so we have to understand the seriousness of this, that these rewards that are given by Jesus are expressions of his gratitude and his response to our love for him.
It's nothing about you meeting a certain quota or you doing certain things in a certain way mechanically. No, it has everything to do with heart posture and him responding it with a heart posture of appreciation and love. And this blew my mind. When I saw that the lukewarm church was granted this, it showed me that lukewarmness to Jesus is so disheartening, but it is so wonderful when you and I burn from that he is going to shower. He's going to shower those who, who, who get out of that spiritual condition and live for him with a blessing such as this. They will be sitting with me on my throne. I know that this is kind of mind boggling, but it is so necessary. Now we can talk for the rest of this time about the different rewards. We can talk about the multiplication of this and the multiplication of that and the recognition and all those different things. But again, we're just skimming the top of this. I want us to actually talk about now some about some instructions concerning how you and I can understand this judgment scene better and how we can prepare for it better. So we understand that there is an element of reward. We can't escape that. It's going to affect the millennial reign and how you and I journey through it. But let me just make a few remarks here. Number one, do not be burdened by this. Do not be overwhelmed by this. Get excited about it. See, it's possible to mishandle this truth right now and to allow it to actually cause more anxiety, more fear, and more discouragement. People can think such thoughts like, well, I, I'm in a place right now that's really good, but prior to this, I've wasted years. What am I supposed to do now? And then you have others who might say, how am I supposed to live moment by moment by moment to assure myself a greater reward? And then you have some people who might just outright say, you know, I'm really totally uncomfortable with this idea of the judgment seat. I wish it didn't exist at all. Now, the only reason why somebody would say those things is because they are misunderstanding the purpose of it. You know, the fact that Jesus Christ is going to reward us at all is an amazing thought alone. We should be satisfied with the fact that we get to go into glory and enjoy him and marvel at him for all eternity. But it is on Christ's heart to actually reward us for the faithfulness that he empowers us for, by the way. So this is something that's on Christ's heart. This is a, a part of his goodwill and his character, and it's perfect. So there's a good reason for this. And in God's wisdom, he does have very good reasons. And here's one of them. I want you to think for a moment about the millions of Christians that you don't know about. That don't have a podcast. That don't have a conference in their name. That don't have a mega church. That don't have a YouTube. That don't have uh, Apple Music covering their songs. That are not known. Th talking about the millions. That are serving the Lord wholeheartedly that are being used by the Holy Spirit, that are touching lives around this globe. Imagine their, their rewards is limited to this life. Imagine that uh, praise and acknowledgement was the, the climax of reward. It's not. For some people it is, and they're going to be surprised at the judgment seat. Now, you know what the judgment seat of Christ does? It sets before every individual believer to live for a different purpose and for a different reward at the end of it all. To live under a different kind of influence. To be stirred by something else that goes beyond this life. 
Because there are many Christians around this world that are not being acknowledged. They're not being praised. They're not being invited to conferences. They're not even being appreciated by those who are closest to them. And that's not just true for those that are in the jungles. That's true even in churches, maybe even your church, maybe even you. You know what the judgment seat of Christ does? It blows all those things over and it sets before you the only motivation you need in this life. So that as you persevere and as you push forward, especially as you are not seeing what you long to see, maybe you feel like you are not getting what you perhaps deserve. That will matter. Because the more you saturate your mind with this truth and convince yourself of this truth, the more you will know a steadfastness and a surrender and a commitment to your ministry and to Christ's likeness, unlike anything else. There is something of a hope. There is something of an encouragement to know that Jesus Christ will look at me in the eyes one day and we will talk about my life, though nobody recognizes my life or even the fruit that I'm offering. This is something that we need and Christ knows that we need it. And unfortunately, so many people have replaced the judgment seat of Christ for Facebook likes and Instagram likes and reshares and posts and YouTube views and being acknowledged at a church or being acknowledged by a denomination or having a book written about them. When Christ has already said something that is more valuable than all those things compiled together, and he says, it's that day where I will look at you and we'll be able to reward you. That's what you have to live by. So much is caused by that if we truly believe it and hold on to it. But it's not just for the positive, it's also for the potential negative. What do I mean by that? When Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? That we may receive all the things that we've done in in the body, whether good or evil, we may receive a, a due reward. You know what he says after in verse 11? He says this. Now pay attention to these words. He says, Therefore... Therefore, what? Therefore, based on the truth that I just said about we must all appear before the judgment seat. As a result of that, he says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Hmm. You know what he's saying? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we may receive the due reward for what we've done in this life, whether good or evil. Then he goes, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul connects the fear of the Lord with the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what he's essentially trying to say. That as a minister, as a preacher, I have set before me the fact that I will be held accountable by the Lord himself for the way I've conducted myself and the way I've been faithful to the assignment that God has given me. You know, there are many people, even within Christian ministry, that will face many temptations. Those temptations can vary. And those temptations can ensnare a person and can almost rob the glory of God and can, in fact, it can get messy even in ministry. But Paul knew a fear of God because he knew something of the judgment seat. And so it was the, 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 the holiness of the judgment seat of Christ that would shine upon his life so that when temptation tried to creep in, it would be spotted and eliminated because he knew what his motives and his actions and his wholeheartedness or lack thereof would ultimately come to. It would be surfaced before the Lord and he would have to give an account to the Lord for what he did and why he did it. This is, a, this is especially needed for us. When Satan tries to whisper and to convince us of something else as we are serving the Lord. You know, somebody 
was talking uh, to a group of us a few months ago about people in ministry that are in sin and how they are still in ministry. And the discussion began to, to go on, like, how is it that some people are in ministry and they're sinning in grievous ways and they're still sinning, whether it's the love of money, adultery, fornication, pornography, all these different things. And somebody brought up the scripture in 2 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy how to run his race. And then he goes on to say something along the lines of, that a runner must run according to the rules. He must run according to the rules, or else he will forfeit his reward. You know what that means? That even in ministry, you can start and end. You can finish your life in ministry. But you know what that means? That if you weren't running according to the standards of Scripture, according to the convictions of God, pertaining to character and motive, you can come to the end of that race for what? For only one thing, to realize that because you broke the rules, you will not be rewarded. So for those who are in sin, consciously aware of it and do not repent of it and choose to hold on to that sin, if they do not make that U-turn, they are in danger of facing the Lord only to realize that they broke the rules and they will not be crowned. So all these things even motivate for an encouragement to live in light of the face of Jesus Christ, but also a warning to not tamper or to make up your own rules in the realm of ministry and service to God, lest you are in for the shock of your life to know that all those things will be burned up because they were done by breaking the rules. So, I think you and I have to understand something, that this is a necessity. This is not a necessary burden or bondage to live legalistically or to live unnecessarily calculating every move because we know that Jesus Christ is going to judge us one day. And, and this is to my next point. The judgment seat is not about quantity as much as it is about quality. See, you can hear this and say, I hear you. Jesus Christ is going to reward me. So I'm going to pray more, fast more, evangelize more, give more, 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 more. Because the more I bring to him at the end of my life, the more he's going to be impressed, right? No. Actually, quite the contrary. Paul says something incredible in 1 Corinthians 3. He, he describes the judgment seat of Christ. And we don't have to turn there, but hear these words. He goes on to describe about the, the quality of our works. And he goes on to say in these two categories of what is going to come before the Lord in our works. It's either going to be gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. These are two different categories. And he says, your works and mine are going to appear as one or the other before Jesus Christ. Now, people interpret, what do those mean? But I think there is one safe understanding of those two categories, that they speak about two different type of materials. If you have wood, hay, and stubble, compare that to gold, silver, and precious stones, and we're told in 1 Corinthians 3, that all of our works are going to pass through the fire. So God's testing fire are going to blaze over our works. Now, let me tell you something. Between those two materials, which ones are going to be consumed by the fire only to be resulting in ashes? It doesn't take science to realize that wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt no matter how much of it you have. You can have miles of it, but it will all be consumed because of its value because of its 
quality. And so what Paul is trying to say is, is that what you and I are really going to be evaluated by Jesus is the quality of our works, not the quantity about it. See, if you think that the judgment seat of Christ is going to determine, oh, he preached to more people, so he's going to be more rewarded. Is it fair for Jesus Christ to give more reward for the Christian who lived up to 90 years in comparison to the Christian who lived up to 60 years because he had 30 more years to live? That's not how this judgment works, and that's not how the judge of the earth works. No, he looks at whatever you've been given. He looks at the capacity of time. He takes all that into consideration. The only thing that Jesus Christ has in mind in order to reward you and me is the quality of our service to him. Which begs the next question in our Bible study tonight. What determines for it to be gold, silver, and precious stones? Is it the way I preach? If I don't stutter, it's more costly. Is it the, the wealth of information that I give? Is it uh, the music that I do? And the, the, What is it? What makes it so precious in his eyes? One quality that Jesus is looking for. For it to pass the test of his fire. Motive. Motive. Look at 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. The next chapter and see what it says there. It's all about motive. Where Paul says that don't judge one another before the time, before the Lord comes. Right? Because we're, we're tempted to look at a minister or to look at a person, even a Christian, and to judge why they do what they do. And Paul says, don't even go there. You know why? Because there's a day coming when all things will be brought to light and the motive of each heart will be disclosed. And then each will receive his commendation from God. So the only thing that we have to be worried about concerning the quality of our works, it doesn't mean we can be sloppy. It doesn't mean that we don't put effort into exercising our gifts. That's not what it's saying either, because that shows you something of your motive. But in the end, it's going to be the reason why you did something. What was your mindset behind it? What was your goal? What was the preparation in your attitude towards your service to the Lord? And that's what will determine whether it is gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. So you can have a ministry where you have a, a global church planning network and the whole time the reason was so that you can be praised and acknowledged and all of those works will come before the Lord and He will burn it through fire and it will turn to black ash. See, it's not the quantity that he's concerned about because none of us can impress Jesus Christ. It's all his Holy Spirit doing it anyway. But the, the only thing that we're responsible of is determining why we do it. Why we do it. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Just listen carefully in Matthew 6.1. He tells us, beware. That's a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the warning. Because earlier he says, let your sh light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to let it shine or not let it shine? You are. But it's the motive that we have to be concerned about. So he says, beware of practicing your righteousness, your giving, your preaching, your posting, your sharing, your writing, you're serving, you're sweeping, you're cleaning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. That's the desire. I want somebody to recognize me. I want somebody to praise me. I want somebody to pat me on the back. I need some validation. I need some approval. He goes, if you do that, this is what Jesus says. 
for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And we know that Jesus goes on to talk about fasting, prayer, and giving, and not to do those things so that others can see us, but to do it in secret. To do it with a heart that says, Lord, I'm doing it for you to see it. I'm doing it because I love you and I honor you and because I know I'm supposed to do it. So Lord, be glorified whether people recognize me or not. That's the motive. Now, that's the the thing, right? Because we are all tempted with what Jesus is warning us about. But as long as you are continually aware and that you continually bring that temptation before the Lord, He will honor and He will work with you to overcome it day by day, night by night, week by week. So don't be discouraged if you're tempted with that thought because that temptation visits all of us. But it's what you do with that temptation and then even going beyond that to bring it before the Lord continually so that you would have a heart that would know how to live for God's approval and God's validation alone. Let me say another thing. The judgment seat of Christ is not a competition amongst Christians. So it's not about me competing with my local church and me competing with this person and that preacher and that worship leader. It's not a competition. This is not Jesus Christ with a limited amount of trophies and whoever impress him the most is going to get the bigger reward. It's not Jesus Christ with a limited amount of thrones and saying, whoever impresses me the most is going to get to occupy these seats. That is not how it works. Let me put it this way. The only person that you are competing against, for lack of a better term, is you. The only person that you have to worry about in this race between now and that Bema seat is you. Christ has rewards set up for each of us. Each of us have a reward ready for us to experience. And the only one that can forfeit it, the only one that can remove themselves from experiencing it, the only one that can give it up is in fact you. And so You don't have to look at others and say, that person is more popular and that person is more impressive and that person is more liked and recognized. Nonsense. It's about your life, your mind, your motive, your calling and how you go about it and how you treat the gifts that God has given you. That's all you and I have to be occupied by. That is a freeing thing. People get this idea that this race that we are to run and to sprint and to keep, it's like, I'm going to beat him and he, none of that. It's about you on one track running with Jesus at the end of it. And that's it. And this is important because that's freeing. See, as I'm preaching, even now, I don't have to think whether you like me or not. I don't even have to go to the place to think of you comparing me to other preachers and saying, you know, this and that. I don't have to worry about any of that. I don't have to worry if... if If you are impressed, I don't have to worry about anything. The only thing that I have to be concerned about is what God has given me as a responsibility, the people he has given me to serve, and then the motive of why I'm standing here on this Friday night speaking to a camera lens. That's the only thing that I have to be consumed by. I don't have to worry about the comparison. I don't have to be worried about the praise or the lack thereof. Thank God that the judgment seat tells me that all I have to be worried about this and being accountable to Jesus Christ at the end of the night when I lay my pillow on my head to say, Lord, did I do it the way you wanted me to do it? That's the only thing. See, if you don't have the judgment seat of Christ as a doctrine in your life, you have to worry about those things because what else is your reward? The humans in your life. 
the ones that will be brushed over by death like grass and fire and will amount to nothing. Those are the ones you have to worry about. But oh, the judgment seat of Christ liberates me from the praise, from the criticism, from the comparison of men to know that I will come before the Lord of glory and He is not one to judge me in the way that carnal men do by comparing gifts and abilities. No, faithfulness and humility is what He is after. Now, that might be freeing, but for some, that's not too freeing. You know why? Because they hear something like this and they think to themselves, okay, I got more clarification, I got more understanding, but brother, if I'm honest with you, I've been a Christian for 10 years, 5 years, and I've wasted 3 quarters of my devotion to the Lord on worldliness and sin. I am inconsistent, I cycle, I can't stand firm for 2 months straight, I know that I'm the only one that I'm supposed to be worried about, but that's what worries me the most is that I'm the one to be worried about because I know myself. And you might be overwhelmed to think, I've wasted so many years, what's the point of moving on? Be encouraged by this. Stop and think for a moment. When Jesus Christ gave arguably one of the greatest promises to those churches in Revelation, He said that you will sit on my throne. To who? To the church that was faithful? To the church that was consistent? To the church that stood out amongst the seven? No. To the lukewarm church. He gave the greatest promise and honor to the most spiritually defeated Christians. You know what that tells me? That even if I'm in the most displeasing place for the Lord, even if I'm the most despicable place spiritually, even if I'm in the most uh, arrogant and proud and unconcerned and indifferent place in my spiritual walk, if I'm willing like them to stop, realize, repent, and for the rest of my days, be an overcomer over lukewarmness, Jesus Christ will reward me still. So this isn't about you looking at your life saying, too late, what's the point now? No, he looked at a lukewarm church and he says, this is available to you if you just realize it now and for the rest of your years, live for my name and to live to invest in your heart burning for my glory. So it's never too late. You determine if it's too late. Don't let the devil lie to you and tell you that it's too late. It wasn't too late for the church of Laodicea. It doesn't need to be too late for you if you take it by faith. But you know what the reality is? Some will even hear this today and they might be nodding their heads in agreement. But God forbid that you would be unmoved by it to the point where you turn off this live stream, not evaluating where you can change so that you can experience the millennial reign of Christ in a greater way. What is it going to be like for those types of Christians that can hear a message like this and be completely unmoved and will show it by not living wholeheartedly to the Lord? What is it going to be like then for the judgment seat? Well, if they're truly born again, you know, it's possible to be born again and to waste your life. It's either that or it's possible to be born again and to in and out, be in and out of your salvation. It's possible to live your life in such a way where you come before the judgment seat and you will experience mixed emotions. And it's not just for those who are lukewarm, who are worldly, who uh, love the things of this world and are lukewarm and they, they don't care about holiness and living and pleasing God. This is even for those who are showing others that they're pleasing God 
and showing others that they're living for God, but their motives are all corrupt. That those two types of people we're gonna, are going to experience a mixture of emotions when they come to the judgment seat of Christ. Why are they going to experience a mixture? It's going to be a mixture of joy and great sadness. See, if you live faithfully and you are rewarded on that day, it's going to be nothing but pure bliss. And you are going to know a wonderful experience that is incomparable to this life. You know, I feel bad for people that are lukewarm. You know why? Because the reason why they're lukewarm is that they want to live for the praise and pleasure that are limited to this world. But there are those who are living faithfully and are probably even being criticized by the lukewarm that are going to receive a praise and a pleasure that will make those who live for the praise and the pleasure in this life regret every second of living outside of the will of God. Now you might be shrugging it off right now and smiling and giggling it away. We'll see you at the judgment seat of Christ. What is it going to be like for those who are not wholehearted towards the Lord and choose to stay that way? Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.15. It's in that same context where he talks about the, the quality of our works. And he says this in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up. So I was talking about the, the material that didn't make the fire that was consumed because of the motive of those works or the lack of those works. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's talking about Christians, by the way. We're still in the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, at the judgment seat of Christ, there is going to be fire. Yes, at the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a suffering of loss. And this is what he's talking about. Those people that want to live carnal, worldly, compromised, or with ill motive, when they come before the Lord, their works are going to be burned up and they will suffer loss. They will, they will not be rewarded. But it says here, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I want you to imagine right now that as you go to bed tonight, you wake up at 2, 3 in the morning because you smell smoke coming from downstairs. And as you open your bedroom door, you realize that it's not just smoke. You see flames coming up those steps. And you realize that there is no way you're going to be able to escape this house unless you do one thing. And that's jump out of the second story and maybe find a rope or something to bring yourself down. And so you do. You, you throw a rope or you make these bed sheets connect and you throw it down the window and you climb your way out only to run to the street to look back and your whole house is consumed in flames. And within moments, it crumbles to the ground into a pile of bricks. You're going to have a mixture of emotions in that moment. For one, you're going to be joyful to know that you are saved. You're alive. You have your health. You have everything in check. You're okay. But then you're also going to look at your house and notice that you're empty handed and you're left with nothing at this point. That is exactly what Paul is saying about the judgment seat of Christ. There will be those who will live in such a way in which everything will be burned up. Because they did not choose to live their life on the foundation of Jesus Christ to build something of worth on it. And so they will be saved. They will have eternal life. But they're going to be empty handed. Let me read a poem to you. And pay attention to these words by Alexander McLaren. That illustrates what I'm trying to say. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And he shows me his plan for me. The plan of my life as it might have been. 
Had he had his way, and I see how he blocked him here, and I checked him there, and I would not yield my will. Shall I see grief in my Savior's eyes, grief, though he loves me still? Oh, he'd have me rich, and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. While my memory runs like a hunted thing, down the paths I can't retrace. Then my desolate heart will weigh well-nigh break, with tears that I cannot shed. I'll cover my face with empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. No, Lord of the years that are left to me, I yield them to thy hand. Take me, make me, mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. So he's describing the emotion of those that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3.15. Empty handed, uncrowned head even seeing the life that Jesus would have had for you if you had just submitted your will. Don't get this twisted now, and don't feel overwhelmed, unnecessarily burdened. You know what you have to do in response to a message like this? Is simply say what he said in this poem. Lord, with the years that are left for me, take me, mold me, make me, do whatever you need to do in me so I can live the way you want me to live. Lord, I determine the level of reward you give me. But Lord, I want to be able to stand before you. And if your rewards mean something of your expression of gratitude and joy, then Lord, let your rewards come. Lord, help me not fall into the temptation of believing that it's about quantity or about comparison. It's simply about my lane of faithfulness, my calling, the capacity of the giftedness that you've given me and the capacity of influence that you have created for me. Lord, help me just see it the way you see it. You need this. I need this to stay on track. You need this and I need this to stay accountable. You need this and I need this to realize that no matter what in this life comes or doesn't come, there is a judgment. There is an evaluation. And the only reason why this would make you feel uncomfortable is if in your life you have not surrendered your will. If you have surrendered your will and everything in your heart longs to live for God's glory no matter what it takes, you shouldn't be fearful. You shouldn't be anxious. You shouldn't be worried. You should be brimming with joy. Why? Because I know. I know. God knows my heart. My heart's laid before Him. I have nothing else to worry about. I want to pray with you. And I'm making a call through this. I'm making a call to response through this now. And here's the call to response. You and I are limited for another month. God, I hope that it doesn't last more than a month. What is your life going to look like after this month? What are you going to do differently? How are you going to serve differently? What are you going to commit yourself to? How are you going to be after this quarantine is over? That's what you and I have to determine tonight and for the rest of our days. And God will faithfully empower us, lead us, and guide us. Because He wants to reward you more than you think. Like I hear His heart to that Laodicean church and He goes, Oh, I'll let you sit with me on my throne if you just overcome lukewarmness. This is a father that longs to reward his children. Not a judge that has a scorecard and wants to check you off and give you something from a vending machine. But we have to believe that by faith and bring it before the Lord and ask Him to do what He needs to do in us. So let's do that right now. Just bow your heads with me and ask the Lord sincerely from your heart to prepare you not just for the millennial reign, but for the judgment seat of Christ. Let's ask God together as a church that our church will look differently as we set before us the judgment seat of Christ to live for that purpose alone.
In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we believe that you're alive. We believe that you're our Savior. And we believe that you're coming again to take us with you. And we believe in the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, if anybody is fearful or burdened or, or senses a legalistic spirit even creeping in now, remove that from them and replace it with a healthy, holy view of this doctrine. And we pray, Lord, that every person would evaluate their lives and see whether they are fully surrendered to your will. And secondly, if they are, to see if their motives are right in their pursuit of you. Help us believe that, Lord, it is part of this this walk where we wrestle with these things, these temptations and these, these corrupting thoughts that try to come in and pollute us. But Lord, you promise us that if we're honest and we walk in the light, that's all we need to do. Lord, uh, many people might not feel like they're worthy to even be rewarded or that they're living to anything that would amount of something being worthy of crowning. But Lord, I believe and we believe that we're going to be shocked to see how you're going to reward us for the most simple things, the littlest things. And we are anticipating that we live our hearts motivated by that and our hearts framed in our convictions for that. And we trust you, Lord, as a church that by the end of this quarantine, we will live with a different zeal and passion because we know that at the end of it, you are waiting for us. We bless you and we honor you and we await your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.